And welcome on in, ladies and gentlemen, to the Check Your Brain podcast, hosted by me, Tony Mazur. And uh, yeah, every Wednesday, these free podcasts go out for you fine folks. So if you want to listen, uh, make sure you hit that like button or subscribe or wherever you're getting this from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever. So they go out every Wednesday for free. If you want more content, I do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, where for th- as little as three bucks a month, you get extra podcasts per month. So upwards of about 20 to 25 podcasts. If you like what you hear here, you get to hear this interview that I'm going to have, and it's an early access to it, and all that other fun stuff. I have video, I have uh, just a lot of, if you like my point of view on certain things going on in the world, I also talk about that on the Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. But I appreciate if you just listen here and you tell a friend or tell five friends. And uh, you get to hear more guests like this who is a uh, somebody that really, uh, I could give him an introduction. He's going to tell you all about his life. Uh, you, you'll recognize his voice. You've heard him in a, a bunch of things. You've seen him in a bunch of things. You probably saw him in a comedy club, and you're like, "Who? Th- this 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 guy is just that voice." You just hear it, and you're like, "Oh, this is just fantastic." And his name is Frankie Pace. He's been around for well, I, I could say 40 years, and his he's had a very long career. But I don't want to I don't want to give away his age. You know, we we don't like telling people how much how old we are, right? <laughs> well. We all get old, my friend. <laughs> but you, you've, I mean, we'll, we'll get into talking about it, and uh, we'll get the plugs here in a little bit. But first of all, well, actually, you know what? Let's do the plugs now. I always like doing this, the, the sandwich plugs, where I start the podcast with the plugs, then we get into talking about whatever we want to get into and all the stories and that, and then we end with the plugs. So if you liked what you heard, you're like, what, what was that website again, or where can I go find him? Like, uh, So where can we find Frankie Pace on social media or at a club near you? Well, right now... I'm living in Vegas, and I'm uh, I'm working a deal with somebody, uh, a film person, and I don't want to get into it too far because if it bombs, everybody will start laughing. <laughs> if it hit, everybody will like it, you know. So, uh, but you can go to f- my website is Frankie, F R E N K I E Pace P A C E Comic dot com. You go on that website, you'll see me. You'll see my podcast that I have that are on Buzzsprout and I do I do like a lot of retro of the older comics and we talk about the industry which is pretty uh, good for young comics, I believe. Well, it's required listening. It's like I, I had a chance to listen to your Eddie Brill interview, and then years ago, obviously, we had, but back in 2014, we lost Otto. And I, one thing I, I always think about is a – so I've been doing comedy since around the time when we lost Otto. So I've been doing comedy nine years. And it, the fact that there needs to be more younger comics who are listening to the glory days or even it doesn't even have to be the glory days it could be some bad days where you weren't getting paid as much the post comedy boom of the early 90s that some of these clubs started closing and everything but it's uh, you have to really respect your elders you have to listen to your elders <laughs> and uh, that, and that's why these old comedy stories for me personally they scratch that itch that i've been looking for <laughs> well, I think you can learn a lot. Like my recent uh, podcast was Jackson Purdue, which I did about 10 years ago. But we talked about comedy. We talked about the comedy store. We talked about Mitzi Shore. And we talked about the Laugh Factory, the improv. And I think these young comics would uh, be interested in listening to that and listening to the ethics of what the comics were doing in those days. 
and how different it is today. But uh, it's interesting. And I, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you're a history buff, you would like to know about George Washington his real life, you know, stuff like that. So. Well, that's why it's, uh, there's a great book that's out there about comedians, like old comedians. It's by Cliff Nesterhoff. And Cliff likes going into the days of Frank Fay and Bob Hope and the the classic, you know, with the, the, the monologist stand-up comedians that uh, were coming out of the 30s and into the 40s and what kind of what we know now. I mean, the whole Bob Hope thing where there was a lot of, there was a lot of people who didn't really like Frank Fay or Bob Hope, but the fact is those monologues that we see in every late-night TV show and every Grammy Awards and Oscars and everything, that stemmed from those comedians. So you kind of have to know your history in order for uh, for you to really understand what's going on nowadays. Also, also you can see how the comedy itself has uh, matured. I don't know if that's the right word, but metastasized <laughs> and changed. It went from uh, uh, joke, 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 joke to observation to um, bi- biological uh, comedy about yourself. And now it's expanding more a little bit with, with the politics and every other thing. And then you have like, you have people like Bill Burr that are ranting and uh, who, I th- who I find very interesting. Uh, I like Bill and I like Dave Chappelle. They have a dichotomy, but it's interesting. And we need more of that. The only problem today I see uh, 85,000 comedians, uh, it's just too, too many people out there. Unfortunately, not everybody is going to make it, and not everybody's a headliner. Uh, most of those people will eventually go back to their day jobs. Oh, yeah, well, and that, and that was the thing was back in the day that uh, what you saw in the 80s, because you you did props as well, which now by today's standards – Today's comedians will say, oh, I'm, I'm beneath, that's beneath me. Like, I'm way above props. And you realize, no, that's, comedy is comedy. Funny is funny. It's just, I, I see more, I would rather see more prop comics and more guitar acts than I would these comics nowadays that go up and tell these long-winded stories with no punchline or payoff. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's what you have today. And um, some of it is interesting, I got to say. But, you know, like Gaffigan knows how to manipulate the audience. I like Ron White. He knows how to manipulate his uh, material. But then you get the average Joe out there. I think they just want to get on stage and be cool and maybe meet some chicks or, you know, do some drugs with some uh, high-end guys or something. I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of fucking weird if you ask me, but, <laughs> you know. It's, that's what's going on. So uh, I don't knock people trying comedy. I always tell the people, if you're going to get on stage, have fun. It's the main thing, is to have fun. So I guess most of them are trying to do that. And then after a while, they realize they can't make money having fun. In, in our day, there were not that many comedians. In our day, there were not that many uh, comedy clubs to work out of. In fact... Uh, the only place I think that I think the comedy store started started everything is Missy Shore. She uh, was going out with a guy named Sammy Shore, who I worked with uh, many times. Sam, and you know, you know his son Paulie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Paulie Shore. So that place was basically 
a, a mob joint. And it, they had Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis there. Uh, Al Martino would sing there. They had a big room in the back. And uh, uh, Sammy, uh, some of the guys, some of the mob guys liked Sammy. This is from the story that I know. Maybe I'm wrong, but this is what I heard. And uh, Sammy was complaining that he got no place to work because he used to open for Elvis. And uh, he actually believed that he could fill a room himself and wanted to go out on his own and try a couple of nights in Colonel Parker or whatever. I think it's Colonel Parker. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that was Elvis's guy. Yeah. Uh, Colonel Parker says, well, go and uh, don't come back. So he went out and bombed. Nobody showed up. And uh, he was in distress. And eventually the uh, mob guy said, listen, we've got a small little bar here. We'll put up a stage. You can do your act on air and, uh, you know, know, make a few bucks and make the people laugh. Really? Yeah. So that's what he did. And while he was doing that, it was was the, uh, he saw this girl across the street with a, uh, you know, like a hot dog vendors, but it wasn't hot dogs. It was all these trinkets that she sold, pens and little booklets and stuff. That was Mitzi Shaw. And uh, he started going out with her. And, uh, you know, they had a couple of kids. And uh, she started working at the comedy store. And, uh, and she sat in the back and she started to realize that this could be a business, you know. But Paulie... But Sammy had no no need for that. He just wanted to go up and do his time. And uh, before he knew it, uh, some people passed by and said, hey, can I work this room? You know, comics want to be comics. Like Jay Leno said, can I work the room? And she said, yeah. Then she realized that these comics were coming in. She didn't have to pay them. And she thought this was great. And Sammy, you know, didn't want to do that. He wanted to do his hour and he would go up and, you know, ruin the whole night because his comedy was totally different to the new style comedy. And, uh, she was really pissed off at him. And then they were on the outs later on. They divorced and all she wanted was the comedy room. She got the store. Yeah. She got the store and she started getting these comics coming in. You know, and uh, the place became a boomer. And uh, and in New York, uh, uh, Friedman, I forget it. Bud Friedman. No, his wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot her first name. I'm getting old. <laughs> who, who the hell is her name? God damn it. What the hell was that project? <laughs> she would sing. She was a dancer on Broadway and all that shit. And they... She wanted a little place where they, her and her friends would go and hang out, and they would sing at this little place they called the Improv. They they would sing, and, and one night a comic came in. Before you knew it, they had a singer and a comic, a singer and a comic, and a singer and a comic. And Bud was going out with her, and he would, like, hang out in the back and stuff, and then they later on got married, and they created the Improv, which begat... Uh, uh, the, not the comic strip, the uh, Good Times. Good Times at 33rd and 3rd with this guy, uh, Rick Newman and another guy, I forgot his name. And they uh, had this crappy little place and uh, 
Rick Newman saw what the improv was doing, and he managed to get Catch a Rising Star going. And that place turned into a super boomer where all the big stars would come in because uh, comedy was brand new, you know. Well, yeah, and, th- and that's one thing that people, it, it's kind of interesting to tell people my age, the millennials and Zoomers, is that the comedy club is a fairly recent uh, like creation. I mean, it, it, I believe the Ice House in Pasadena, P- Pasadena was one of the first, if not the first, quote-unquote comedy club and then like you said about the comedy store which was the old Ciro's back in the 30s and 40s and the mob joints and uh so the 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 idea that you would go to an actual place for comedy and comedy only is it's maybe a half century old it's really not that old and it became a you know the 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 in thing for actors to come and see actors would come and see these comics and that brought in the audience because the audience wanted to see the actors. And uh, I mean, I I remember being Catch a Rising Star, watching Lenny Schultz, prop comedian, throwing jelly all over himself, you know, and, and, and uh, pl- uh, playing finiculi finicula while he uh, juggled uh, spaghetti with buck teeth, you know. And next to me would be uh, uh, John Goodman and uh, David Bowie sitting on both sides of me. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I can't fucking believe And all the place would be mobbed. This is like one in the morning and it's mobbed. And it was mobbed every night because you know, the celebrities would keep coming in. And then eventually the celebrities uh, slowed down coming and, uh, you know, everything, like everything, it changes. Then, then you know, the, the comic strip began, became part of it. Then later on, Stand Up New York, and then the Comedy Cellar with Manny. Manny uh, was a great guy. He ran the Comedy Cellar, and he had the Cafe Wa. He owned that, too. His son runs it now. Gnome, yeah. Yeah, he has a, a SD runs it for, for the son, I think. Yeah, and, and and that's the one thing about uh, when when you're mentioning a lot of these old comedy clubs and what happened. Of course, like you said, with Mitzi Shore getting the store, while Sammy Shore went, ended up in Vegas for basically the next forty years until he passed away, and then you had Bud Friedman takes takes the the improv out to uh, over to Hollywood because they were over in, in New York and all those comedy clubs that I know you worked at Catch a Rising Star you had Pips you had Dangerfields came up in the 80s and it's just this comedy boom so I'm assuming that that's what when you started looking at everything around you and all the people that you came up with whether it was Eddie Murphy or Sam Kinnis and everything that that's what really inspired you and you're like I gotta find a stage and I gotta find it now I started out in Long Island with Eddie and Rosie, Rosie O'Donnell, at a little place called the White House Inn, and uh, Jackie Marling, who uh, yeah, Jackie was like the resident host, right? Yeah, he was at that. Yeah, he was also uh, was a writer, head writer for uh, uh, shit, Howard Stern, the Howard Stern Show, and there were a lot of other comics that were, that were there, and we all started out together. And uh, in fact, Eddie got me. Uh, on Saturday Night Live as a special guest. I mean, that's how I got on Saturday Night Live. How how did that happen? Like, what did, what did you do on the show? Because it, it, that's the one thing is it's so hard to go through those old 
SNL clips. Like, I want to find the Gene Domanian years, the Dick Ebersol years of SNL. And for whatever reason, they have really gone through and scrubbed most of it, except for, like, a couple of the Eddie Murphy, like Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, and I'm Gumby, damn it. That's about it. But you can't really find a lot of stuff between those years of, like, 1980 and 1985. You just brought back a memory when Eddie was doing Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood which actually was Rob Bartlett's uh, Mr. Roberts. Rob Bartlett did it first. That's true, yes. And Eddie basically took that and created that on Sunday Live because the kid needed material. Come on, he's a kid. You know, see, he needed material. And he did well, and he's a great mimic. Eddie's a great mimic. But the thing was, when he was, he had Cujo, his little dog. Remember that scene when he was, uh, the dog was on a bar stool <laughs> talking Eddie's talking like to the camera and you see like a little smirk in Eddie's face because Eddie's like laughing because I'm standing behind the camera with my cow horns on my head. (laughs) (laughs) They had to drag me out of there because, you know, because I almost ruined the fucking set, you know, and the and the uh, audience is laughing and shit. And I got the fucking cow horns on my head. But uh, what happened was Eddie was going to do 48 hours. And I was hanging out at the at the uh, at catch, and they needed three comedians because Eddie was going to do two shows that week. So they wanted to keep the audience fresh, thinking that using comedians in between the breaks would keep it going. But unfortunately, the two comics they picked—I'm not going to mention their names—didn't do what they want, what they expected. And I was the third comic, so they came up to me and said they were going to let me go. And uh, I says, ah, shit. I was pissed because, you know, it's 500 bucks. You know, I wanted money. And I said, shit. And all of a sudden, I see Eddie walking under the bleachers. And he says, hey, Pace, what are you doing? I said, hi, Ed. You know, I says, I'm supposed to uh, be a warm-up for you guys, but I guess it's not working out. How are you doing? How's the, how's the filming coming along? You know, a little talk like that, you know. And then that was it. You know, he didn't say anything else. And all of a sudden, uh, Dick comes out, the producer, and says, Eddie says, you're really funny. He says, I should come and see you. And uh, what do you want me to see you? I said, well, catch a rising star, you know. And uh, it was funny because Bill Moore was the MC when I had to go down there and try to get a spot. So I'm talking to Bill, and Bill's like, well, because the MCs at catch a rising star were powerful. They could decide who goes on the stage or not. So... I said to Bill, I says, listen, I need a 9.30 spot. Well, I don't know if I can do that, blah, 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 blah. So I said, look, this guy owns 20 restaurants, and uh, he's going to pay a lot of money. He's talking like five grand a week. He says, really? I says, yeah, he's talking a lot of money. So, you know, if I get the spot, we can all start making some bucks, you know. So, okay, so he gives me the spot. So that Monday night comes, and he goes, uh, all right, so where is uh, this guy that you you got the spot for? Where is he? Where is he? And all of a sudden, Dick Ebersol comes in and goes, Hey, Frankie, you ready to go on? And Bill's mouth just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I did 20 minutes, and um, he loved it. But he said, I can't use the 20. I only want five. So show me your best five minutes. And uh, three months later, uh, I got this young kid from William Morris because I've been trying to get in touch with Saturday Night Live and 
nobody's, you know, answering my calls or nothing. So I got this young kid that was uh, pushing it, pushing them, you know, the letters and stuff in the basement. That's how they start these agents. He was working the mailroom. I said, Mark, you want to become an agent? Get on the fucking phone and get me on that show. Eddie, you know, wants me on that show. Get me on that fucking show. So he kept calling and I told Robin, Robin, you're going to be hosting. Can you mention to Dick that I'm supposed to be on that show? Okay, I will, I will. And before, you know, and uh, uh, Mark calls me up and says, listen, we got, I got them. We're going to do another audition. And But he calls up Catch and says, uh, this is Mark Petrarca from William Morris. I have an audition for Saturday Night Live for Frankie Pace, and we need a spot. And they went, oh, okay. But he, they didn't tell him that they were going to put every fucking comic in the world in front of me. <laughs> Jeez, of course. <laughs> oh, that's how the clubs are. They figured, well, if Frankie doesn't make it, maybe one of the other guys will make it, you know. But the thing was, I was practicing five minutes for three months, five minutes, just going around the clubs doing five minutes. And uh, these comics were so nervous, and they were doing 15, 20 minutes. And Dick Eppersall was calm in the back, didn't get upset. He watched the acts, you know. And they and the, the, the audience wasn't going for it because they were so nervous. You know, when you got an audition and, you know, you get a little, you know, nervous and you don't get timings off. So these comics are losing it. And uh, my friend Ronnie shakes says, Frankie, I'm going to go up. I'm going to get the crowd. And when I get the crowd going, you come running right up because I'm going to mention your name right away. And I want you to get up there right away. Or else the MC will go up. It wasn't Bill Maher. It was another guy. And he was like... He was watering down the audience, believe it or not. I says, you know, he says, he'll, 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 he'll do it again. So when I call you up, just get up there. The minute you're on that stage, they can't get you off. So I says, okay. And sure enough, he gets the fucking crowd going. I go, holy shit. Ronnie shakes. Fantastic. You know, and he goes, now I want to bring up my friend Frankie Pace. Frankie, get up there. So I went up and I did the five minutes. And uh, fucking the crowd went bananas. They went fuck, fucking crazy, you know. And I went in the bathroom saying to myself, ah, shit, I'm sick of it. I'm going to go back to plumbing. <laughs> fuck this. I'm going to buy another truck and start all over. And I'm in the bathroom taking a fucking leak. And somebody taps me on his shoulder. I almost turned around and pissed on him. I was like, oh, sorry. I didn't. And he goes, you're great. You're great. We're going to put you on, you know. And then... Uh, we had another month or two of nothing happening, you know, and I was really despondent. I said, oh, I'm really fucking fed up. And I had my car on the lift in Port Jefferson where I lived. And uh, the phone rings in the, in the gas station and the mechanic picks it up. He goes, hey, Frankie, is the guy who wants to talk to you. You know, I said, I said who is he? Because I don't know. It's a, I don't know his name. Willie? Willie? Willie what? Willie, Willie Morris, give me the fucking phone. <laughs> and my my agent, Mark, goes, where the fuck you been? My, your wife says you're at a shell station. I called every fucking shell station in Port Jefferson. You got to go down tonight. You're blocking for Saturday Night Live. I says, what? Tonight you're blocking. You're doing a show tomorrow night. And I was there, you know. And, uh, so I went down. And uh, Barry Berry, who was a dear friend of mine, Barry Berry Douglas, he was a writer for Living Color. 
and uh, he came with me because I wanted him to be with me. And uh, the first show we taped, the group Madness uh, was there. You ever hear that group? I don't know if you know them. Mm, yeah, no, I, I think so. In the middle of the street, oh, that was the name of the tune. There was, they were from England, and they gave me the 1250 spot. That was the dead spot. That, you know, like 1230, people shut their TVs off and go to bed, you know. So I says, I looked at Barry. Oh, Barry, I'm getting fucked six, seven ways to one. I can't believe this, you know. So he goes, well, you know, leave it up to God and see what happens. Just do your best, you know. So we taped the first show. And then after they went on, they were stoned. <laughs> Sax play was playing off key. And it just wasn't working, you know. And Dick Ebersole drags me into it. Comes into my dressing room and says, You're getting the 1150 spot. So that's the primo spot. And as I'm walking out on stage, George McGovern says, And now our special guest, Frankie Pace, fucking Barry says, Have fun, man. 25 million watching. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, that's, that's what you want to hear. Yeah, I had fucking diarrhea running down my leg in the back, you know, like, Holy shit. But I went out and had a great set. The fucking horns fell off my head. And I just, you know, improved with it. You know, I said, I want to be a cow. And then the one fell off. I said, well, half a cow. Then the other one fell off. And I said, bye, cow. You know, and the audience felt relieved that I wasn't, you know, worried about it. And it went well. It went very well. I mean, if you look at it now, it's not really uh, as as strong a set as it was in those days. Because people think differently, you know. But uh, that's my thing. And then before I knew it. The calls started coming in and working my ass off, and uh, the rest is, you know, that's it. Boy, am I fucking talking here. Well, and you, and you got you got a chance to go on the road a bunch. Uh, like I said, you 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 work with Kinnison for a while. What was that like? I mean, you were working with him at the height, right? I wasn't working with, with Sam. I was friends with oh, oh, friends with him. Yeah, that's it. Sam would come to the. Uh, catch a rising star and we'd fucking hang out and play Pac-Man till four in the morning, you know, shit like that. Same with Robin. Robin and I would do uh, uh, improvs on stage. You know, like we do like two sperms swimming upstream and Robin turned to me and says, so, uh, so what do you want to be? And I looked at him and I said, I don't know. I, I kind of like heels, you know. <laughs> so, and uh, we were doing shit like that and I was hanging with Sam and Sam went up one night. They weren't going to put him up, but Robin spoke up for him. Said, listen, give him a chance, you know, because they, they didn't like his yelling stuff. So, But uh, they put him up, and uh, I went inside to watch him. And he's doing his yelling and all that stuff, and, and he's eating it. He's eating it, you know. And he comes off stage and goes, the fucking crowd sucks. Fuck. So I pulled him over to the side. I says, I got to tell you this, man. These guys wear suits. They work all day. They come here to drink a little bit, maybe pick up a girl or something. They really don't give a shit. I've seen Robin Williams after 10 minutes walk off stage because he's not getting the results, you know. I said, but I noticed one thing in the back. The guys that are in the bands, the rockers, were laughing their fucking asses off. They really enjoyed you. That's your crowd, you know. And then uh, he just smiled and felt better. And before we knew it, you know, down the road, I'm, I was home watching HBO, and uh, he was on uh, Rodney Dangerfield special. And Bob Nelson was on there, too. He was, he's a good prop comic, excellent prop comic. 
And uh, it was supposed to be Dice Clay's thing, his night, his big night. And Sam just ripped that fucking room apart. I fell out of my bed. I was laughing so fucking hard, you know. Well, and, and, and Sam was one of those, obviously, by today's standards, he's kind of an acquired taste because of the yelling. But his yelling wasn't, it was part of the shtick, but it wasn't the entire shtick. Like, you weren't just going there for him to yell. Yeah. It was a statement. You know, his yell was a statement of his frustration and, you know, that he held inside the pent up emotions. And that's why the people laughed because they could feel that, you know. And, um, yeah, that's that's where he was at, man. And I, you know, we were good friends, but I wasn't like his super pal. I didn't hang around with him. I mean, I ran into him out in uh, L.A. a few times, and we talked a little bit, you know. Same thing with Eddie. I mean, I never really hung out with Eddie. I just knew Eddie, and Eddie was always good to me. And uh, I was at the Columbus restaurant one night. Uh, it was owned by Barishnikov and... Um, I forget his name. He had a, he had a TV show in the morning uh, on NBC. Uh, Regis Philbin. Regis Philbin. They owned this place called Columbus. And after about 12 o'clock at night, when the customers were gone, all the celebrities would come in there and hang out and have coffee and, you know, have booze or whatever. And, you know, big, big fucking names would be in there, you know. And uh, my wife wanted to come in one night to see the celebrity, so I made an appointment. Because they were having, uh, it was a little earlier, for dinner. So she wanted to have dinner there. And uh, I made the appointment like two weeks in advance. And the guy was being a dick to me. He says, I don't see you on the list. So I, I handed him a $100 bill. And he still didn't see my name. I go, look, look at this fuck. He's taking the money and He's still not giving me shit here, you know. And my wife says, I don't believe it. Why? I says, why? Well, turn around. And they said he's sitting there across the way with, with his entourage. So I walked up to him, you know, I said, man, what is this, the black version of the little, the Last Supper? He started laughing. <laughs> and he says, uh, what's up? What's up? I said, I'm this fucking guy, man. I, I, I asked for a seat, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And I went, eh, fuck it. Don't worry about it, Ed. I, I'm going to go. So, so me and my wife start to walk out in the street. All of a sudden, the maitre d' comes running out. and says, Mr. Pace, Mr. Pace, uh, I have a seat for you, you know. And uh, it was like the Sopranos, not not the Sopranos, the Goodfellas. You know when they bring the table in, yes, fit it out for the same shit. You know they like put the fucking table out there, and Eddie looks at me and I give him a thumbs up. He gives me a thumbs up, and that was really sweet of him. You know, so I heard a lot of those stories that uh, I think Otto told a story one time where because I know Otto really didn't drive, especially during his days when he was doing a lot of drugs and drinking and stuff but i think there was one where he he said that him and eddie were doing a, a gig somewhere and they were going through the toll booth and of course like right as they're approaching where it says like toll booths like one mile all of a sudden eddie just so happens to fall asleep and he's doing that comically loud snoring <laughs> so he didn't have to pay the, half the toll <laughs> so I mean, like, because I've gotten to know Trish a little bit. Uh, talk about, I, by the way, anybody who's listening who doesn't know about Otto and George, go on YouTube, stop this podcast, pause it right now. Don't don't click out of it, just pause it. Go to YouTube, type in Otto and George, 
and just enjoy yourselves. Go see him on Full Frontal Comedy with uh, with uh, Don Marrera. There's uh, Bobby Slayton brings him out at the Porn Awards and uh, the appearance on Letterman when he comes out there. Oh, my God, was it hilarious. That was great. I took, uh, On my podcast, I had him talk about that. And uh, he was upset because uh, David had a tendency to make fun of comedies, comedians. Uh, especially uh, ventriloquists. They had ventriloquist week, and they brought in all these ventriloquists, and these poor guys really thought they had a career going. And it was a really a, a kind of a spoof on them, you know? And that pissed Otto off. So when Otto came out, he just didn't give a fuck. And uh, first line was he turned to Paul and said, Hey, Paul, your case of, fucking, your case of turtle wax just came in. <laughs> and then he jumped all over uh, uh, all over uh, David like he was I don't know I, I, I forget the character I don't know if it was Hedley Lamar it was it was Audrey Hepburn Audrey Hepburn yeah and he was just doing shit he didn't give a fuck in fact when he was finished he turned around and you could see his hand in the dummy's back you know he he did the where he did the one where he's like uh, yeah Letterman the skinny guy over there it looks like he can rob a salad bar and he does the it's like hey Letterman uh, I enjoyed your work in Cabin Boy it's your best work you did since Mork and Mindy <laughs> you know he's like better than I do <laughs> well it was Valentine's Day I remember it was Valentine's Day two thousand seven and he comes out on stage and he has this little like pin on that has a heart and he says happy valentine's day everybody and look i got a big heart on <laughs> yeah <laughs> she woke up she had like a glazed donut around her lips and i guess they said the only thing that they cut out of that is when and it's the most innocuous thing ever is when he did his joke where he's like new jersey where a fart is refreshing that's when they roll the windows up it's like yes that's a broccoli fart those are good he said that's the only thing they cut out of that set surprisingly <laughs> the thing i liked about it too is his mouth moved he didn't give a shit <laughs> it was the wildest and people loved him you know we would he, he some when he started out you know some of the audiences would walk out and and late at night all the comics would come in and they would sit down and like at the improv and we'd be on the fucking floor dying. I mean, just wild shit would come out of his head. You know, and he'd give a shit. That's what I loved about. And uh, I was despondent one time because I was getting hit hard about being a prop comic and, you know, we're not working certain rooms because they, they fucking knocked me for being a prop comic. So, you know what he said to me? He says, Frankie, I don't go to parties I'm not invited to. And that opened me up. It took all that fucking pressure off of me. And I usually tell that to comics when they're in that, you know, like sad solitude of uh, disappointment, you know. And uh, it, it's refreshing to hear. It really is. And if you want to know, you know, more about that, I, I know I'm plugging my, my podcast, but I have Otto. I uh, podcasted him on my show. And it's on my website. If you go to podcasts and you just scroll down, you'll see. Uh, Otto and George podcast there. I only got a chance to see him once live, and it was fall on the floor. I just and I and the thing is, as an Otto fan, I knew all the jokes. Like he didn't come up with new material all the time. It was oh, he's doing the he's doing the Kennedy assassination bit where the head falls off and you see the brains and stuff. But it would there are certain comics that 
when you hear them more, it's kind of like going to see your favorite band. If you're going to see Journey and they don't play Don't Stop Believing, you're going to be disappointed. But with comedy, it's the opposite. It's like, oh, I already heard this joke. I want to hear new stuff. But sometimes there are some comics that the more you hear a story, the more you hear a joke, the funnier it is. And it turns into like that rock star moment. Well, Tom Rever had that problem. Uh, he wanted to try new material and they would force him to go back to the old material. And it's just, I'm trying to grow, you know, and I try new material. They don't want to hear it. They want to hear the stuff that they show on TV, you know, and uh, I guess that's your fans. I guess you got to deal with that, you know. I talked to Dom about that because I've I've seen him a number of times and uh, he he did a lot of that stuff that was on that HBO special where he's doing the, you know, the, uh, it's like, ah, uh, you know, it's cut my, cut off my favorite arm. That's my, it's my favorite. That's the arm I hug my girlfriend with. And, you know, he did the, uh, and there's, uh, there's little Petey, big Petey, repeaty, orthopedy, you know, he does that whole bit. And he said afterward, he's like, there's a whole group of the Italian American club that came to this show specifically. And they want to hear that joke. He's like, I'd love to do my other material, but that's what the crowd wants. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, even um what's his name? Dynamite. He was up in Boston and he says, I'm not doing dynamite tonight and they booed him. Oh yeah, no, Jimmy Walker was like that. They booed him because he wouldn't do that the dynamite with you know, whatever he does his material. So Jimmy's a good guy. He's uh, loves loves to tell stories too. You should get him on a podcast. I've talked to Jimmy. I've talked to him. Uh, he was, boy, I mean, you want to talk about name dropping because Jimmy was, uh, he shows me a picture of a writer's room where he's at the head of the table and it's Jay Leno on one side. It's Letterman. It's like Jack Handy and it's a couple other comedy writers. And you're like, Jimmy Walker in 1974 was probably the biggest comic in all of America because he was one of the only comics that Mitzi and Bud Friedman would let because there was, as you know, that Mitzi wouldn't let. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, yeah and it, it didn't happen in those days. There were very few that were able to cross over. I think maybe uh, Freddie Prince was probably one of them, but Jimmy Walker was one of the only people that can play the comedy store and the improv, and there was no problem. And Jimmy would always be on Letterman. You know why? Because when Letterman was hurting and had no money and was working out at the, at the comedy store, Jimmy would give him money for, as a writer to write for him. And, you know, and he lived off of that. So David never, never forgot. So, you know, you always saw, you always saw him on a David Letterman show multiple times, you know. Yeah, so, well, I mean, you know, some of those comics, some of those great names you worked with, and then you, you had been on other shows, of course, like, as you mentioned, SNL, and you were on the Richard Belzer show. We just lost Richard uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, uh, which which Cosby show were you on? Uh, um, Physician of the Year. Oh. He, his, he, I played a waiter. I played a waiter there. It was a, it was the under five, no big deal. Was it was it there was the original Cosby show because I know he's had like uh, how many there was Cosby and then there was another show he did in the late nineties and it's like the kids the one he had the kids and his wife was a, a psychologist I believe or okay yeah I, yeah he was the doctor she was a either a lawyer or a psychiatrist you know he wanted to be um, <laughs> he wanted to be um, a driver, you know, for rich people, a limousine driver. And they said, no, we're not going to do that to you. You're going to be a doctor. 
No, I didn't know that. Yeah. His idea was to be, you know, a limousine driver like Mrs. Daisy, you know, something like that. And uh, the producer said, no, 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 no. You're going to be, you're going to be a doctor and your wife's going to be, you know, you, you're going to be upper class people. going to put you in a nice, nice neighborhood. going to put you in a nice house. I, it worked out for him for a while, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I say, you know, he, he was uh, interesting and uh, he was okay with me. I mean. You know, we went out drinking one night, and uh, I ended up in a motel the next morning. But he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> did now? Did you hear any of those? But you know, <laughs> did you hear any of those stories? Because I there's certain comics, and you hear things that come out, and you're like, I can't believe that happened. And the like, you started hearing about Cosby stories, and people didn't believe them because he was an otherworldly. Like he almost owned NBC. It's it, Bill Cosby wouldn't do that. You're just saying that because he's the wholesome father figure, and you're thinking he's a rapist. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you see De Niro, right? Great actor. Yeah. You ever see him interviewed? Oh, oh, it's painful. It's like a piece of fucking imbecile. I'm going, what what the, f the fuck is this? You know, because I always loved him, man. I love all his work, you know. And I'm looking, I'm going, the f the f just, um, He was with Maniscalco. I just saw a tape of that. Maniscalco's sitting there, and De Niro's on the side. And that guy says to De Niro, what was your favorite movie that you made? All the movies that you made. And he's actually going... Well, um, the, uh, the first, well, uh, I, um, actually, uh, it, it, well, you know, I did a movie where I played to myself and I'm looking at him going, what the, what the fuck is he talking about? You know, there's no continuity there. What, what is he doing? You know? And so you never know the real person you're seeing the actor when you see them on, on screen, the, the real person. Yeah, it's separating the act. That's the one thing whenever anybody talks about watching the Cosby show today, and they're like, oh, I don't know if I can watch that because of who he became. And they're like, well, he was that at the time, but you can separate Cliff Huxtable from Bill Cosby, the person. Or, or it's like Louis C.K. was another one, where it's like, I get, he's a sexual harasser or whatever, and it's like, I can watch a Louis C.K. special and go, this guy is brilliant, and also understand that he's also a pervert, too. You're allowed to do that. Yeah, he's a fucking, you know, oversexed weirdo, but he's funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, and then here's and the other thing is it's got to be, it, I would assume it's got to be probably tough for you because there's a lot of these comics that you've known that, uh, like I mentioned, Richard Belzer, we lost Gilbert last year, that these guys are just, uh, what I'm trying to do on this podcast is trying to keep these old stories and these people alive uh, for generations so these old stories don't get forgotten about. And, uh, you know, you got to work and you got to know Gilbert. Uh, although it, it, it probably was interesting because there's Gilbert and then there's the Gilbert, like, who, that everybody knows from everything else. But what, yeah. Gilbert. I worked with Gilbert at the comedy store. And he always called me Jew hater. <laughs> I says, you little fucking asshole. I says, my wife's a Jew, you fuck. You know? <laughs> you know? So, very strange. 
but a real fucking sweetheart. He was a real sweetheart. We had an, we would go up, if, sometimes he would go up with Freddie Stola to chase the crowds out because the crowds would stay too late and the waitresses, you know, they want to go home. They made their money. Everybody made their money and they want to go home. They want to close the place up. So they would go up there and fuck around. So one night Freddie wasn't there. So I went up on stage with Gilbert and we did the old uh, Lucille Ball and uh, Harpo Marx bit with the mirror. <laughs> yes. We did it for 20 minutes and people started going, <laughs> That's not, what the fuck are they doing? God, this is terrible. Let's get out of here. And we were emptying the place out, you know. After 20 minutes, I couldn't take it no more. So I left there for another 15 minutes by himself. <laughs> I Now, another time we were working and we, we all finished up. We would go to the green kitchen next door, across the street, and have like breakfast, you know. So breakfast, I'd have dinner really. I, I ordered hamburgers and fries. And I come back and Gilly's eating off my fucking plate. I says, what, what are you doing? He goes, ah, these are delicious. <laughs> so I went over to the guy and says, give me a bowl of fries. And the guy said, I don't give a fuck how much it costs. Just give me a big bowl of fries. So I come back with a big bowl of fries. I put it on the table. And he's like, whoa. I said, yeah, whoa, you're going to eat every one of these fuckers. <laughs> then he started laughing. <laughs> but, and then I, I ran into him. Oh, God, I was down 39th Street. Um... Uh, I was waiting for my wife. She had to go see a, uh, this this doctor or some shit. I forget. And anyway, who comes walking up the street wearing all black socks, black shoes, black shorts, black shirt, uh, a black cap, and he's got a knapsack on his back, and he's staring into a uh, a store that's you know that's been you know destroyed or ripped out. There's nothing in there. So I turn and I go, "Hey, Gilly." He turns around, he sees me, he smiles, he walks over, leans into my door, and we started talking. And uh, what a sweet guy he was. He really was. And then he lost that job with Aflac. You heard about that, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he goes on, he goes, I was uh, going out with... This is right after the tsunami in Japan. I was going out with a Japanese girl, and she uh, she left me. But I didn't care, because I knew another one would float by. <laughs> it's just classic. Japan went fucking bananas and said, he must have been fired. You must have fired him. So they had to fire him and find another guy to go, Aflac! So, no. so 50,000 guys auditioned for that part. Yeah, John Biner said that he went out for that. John Biner was on my podcast, and he was talking about it and said that he went out for that role, but he didn't want to do the Gilbert voice because he thought, well, look, I'm not going to do Gilbert. I'm going to do John Biner doing a voice. And then he goes and does his voice, which kind of sounded like the ant in the aardvark. And then they said, oh, we got a new uh, voice. And it's somebody who does the exact same thing Gilbert was doing. Yeah, I mean, that's what they wanted. And everybody was doing the Affleck thing. And uh, I never went. I said, screw it. It's not, it's not going to happen. It's either going to be a friend or somebody that knows somebody or a high-profiled agent or a manager, you know, because it's such a simple thing. And, uh, oh, here's another Gilbert story. Saturday Night Live at Catch a Rising Star. Gene Domanian is now the producer. Uh, Gilbert is going to audition for Saturday Night Live. 
they begged him, please don't do the parrot joke, you know, because it's filthy, and it's disgusting, and don't do the parrot joke. And he gets up on a stage and does the parrot joke. And everybody's like got their hands over their eyes, like, oh my God, what the fuck is he doing? Meanwhile, Gene Domanian is on the floor laughing her ass off. And he got hired. Yeah, that was the classic 1980 year with him, Charles Rocket, Eddie, um, uh, Joe Piscopo, and it just it didn't work out. But there were a couple of people in that cast that did something. Yeah, but the thing that I'm trying to get across is that Gilbert doesn't give a shit. He never gave a shit what people thought. He would he would do what he wanted to do, and if it worked, it worked. Like he was asked to go up into the mountains to do uh, one of the hotels up there. And the uh, Orthodox Jews, one with the curls on the side of the day, mm-hmm. hear what they call that. I don't know if they payuses or whatever they call it. Do you know what they call that? Uh, not offhand, no. I'm Catholic. <laughs> Excuse me. Post-nasal drip. This is when you get old, you get your shit. Uh, you might have to cut this out. Oh, boy. Okay, anyway. They hired him up there, and he goes up and does the filthiest, grossest material, and everybody's, like, scared to death that people are running out of the place. And after the show's over, you know, he was they considered him the, the most terrible act they've ever seen in their lives. His first word is, so where's the dinner? When are we having dinner? <laughs> That's that's what's so funny about Gilbert is that, you know, Freddie Roman would have him at the Friars Club and uh, there was one, I think, I forgot which roast it was that he was up there and Shecky Green was like, I I can't take this anymore. This is disgusting. I've never been more disgusted. And ultimately what it came out is Shecky wasn't disgusted by the act. He knew he couldn't follow Gilbert. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And Gilbert would just go off on the deep end. And uh, keep going. He wouldn't stop. He'd just keep going till he felt he wanted to stop, you know. So that's what I loved about him, you know. He just, <clears throat> he was his own person. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Howard Stern asked him once <clears throat> about a girl that he was going out with, and Gilbert wouldn't tell him. And, and uh, Howard kept threatening him. By never coming on the show again, and all this other, and and Gilbert would just laugh in his face, and I'm saying that's Gilbert. He doesn't give me shit. You know? You're not gonna twist his mind, and he's not gonna go, oh, I'm gonna conform. You see, he doesn't give a shit. You know, and that's what people loved about him. Yeah, it- you know, talking to God yesterday, I was at a party, and he walks into the room. And God says, Gilbert, what's the matter? You look very distressed. Why did kill all the Jews? And God said, listen, you know what your problem is? You don't trust anybody. <laughs> you know, and people just, you know, either got it or they were laughing their asses off. You know? he, he used to do another one where he's like about aliens coming to the planet. And then uh, like one of them comes out and is like, was, was Ben Gazzara a good actor? <laughs> Or, or, or there was another one where uh, Artie, Artie Lang has told this story where they were doing a gig in, I think, San Diego. 
and both of them were not doing well. I don't know what it was. There was maybe a college or something. And Gilbert decides to just go on stage and start singing You'll Never Walk Alone, the song that Jerry Lewis used to end the telethons with, and did the whole song. Like, he didn't do a part of it. He did the whole song until people started booing and leaving. And, of course, the only other person who thought it was funny was Artie Lang. Because you talk about a true, like, Otto, Gilbert, they were true comics comics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Otto is, uh, I miss Otto deeply, really deeply. Uh, Gilbert I miss too, but Otto deeply. And Sam, <clears throat> and Louie Anderson, and uh, Richard Belzer. And, <clears throat> you know, it's sad that the guys are leaving one at a time here, but uh, it's the way it is. Yeah, and all at once too. That's, uh, I mean, we, we got hit from Norm MacDonald and Bob Saget and Louie Anderson and Gilbert, which just a couple of months ago. <laughs> No McDonald. Oh God. <laughs> Andy Dick is on his show. <laughs> so he says, uh, so uh, you're going out, uh, hey, you're going out with these guys and you're enjoying yourself and, uh, you know, and you're doing your, uh, knob and work. And then, uh, you know, you got to understand, uh, you know, when I get that stuff in your mouth, there's live things in there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, Fucking chair! I fell off my fucking chair. The the balls to say, and Andy just stared at him. He didn't know what to say. He was totally just shocked, and Norm just didn't give a shit, you know. So well, that's that's what it comes down to. Is all these comics like they all didn't give a shit. They all they all just went up there. They they did their act. They knew what they were good at. If you got it, you got it. If you didn't, well, then catch up. You should get it sometime. It's really funny. What I tell comics when they want to find out what they should do. <clears throat> understand this you're going to go in a room there's going to be 200 people there you're going to do your act and 20 of them are laughing okay 20 of them are laughing their ass off the other 80 can't stand you you do your next show again the 20 that like you come back and they bring their friends so now you got 60 in there and 40 leave. <clears throat> and eventually, like Sam Kennison, you fill the room. Same as Bill Barr. Same as Dave Chappelle. That's how it works. That's exactly how it works. Same with Richard Pryor. That's how it works. George Collin. That's how it works. And you got to know when to give up stuff to create new stuff and stay on top of the, the curve. You know what I'm saying? Because there is a curve. And things do change, and you have to, you know. I'm doing it myself now. I'm still doing doing comedy. I, I do props, but I only do 10 minutes of it at the end of my act. And the rest of it is all stand-up. And um, It's a variety. Hmm? You know, what you have is a variety. It's kind of like you can't, like, there are some comics who will do that. They have a piano, they have a guitar, but you give people a little bit more than just, hey, I'm going to go up here, do, I'm doing my 45, and I'm getting off stage. It's like, no, we'll give you a little bit more. Like, here's some props, here's some music, here's some crowd work, here's some written material. You know, it, you're giving people a little bit more than just a straight monologist on stage. Also, have to, you have to believe in yourself really believe and you have to really sounds corny but you gotta love your crowd you really gotta love your crowd like you're in like you know they're family in your house and you're in the living room doing a show for them i mean and uh <clears throat> paul mooney 
Here's the guy. Paul, you know Paul Moody? Oh, yeah. Or Richard Pryor. And uh, I went to, I, I did this show at, at, this, at the store in the OR room, right? Now, I'm working a packed room. Working a packed room is a piece of fucking cake, okay? They're laughing at everything. I'm fucking killing. They're tearing the room apart. I leave. I have to run down to the lab factory because I'm not doing props now. Props now. I'm just doing stand-up because it's a pain in the ass to carry all that shit around like carrot top, you know? So I come back. Oh, it's got to be one thirty in the morning, you know? I walk in. Place is, it's almost empty. There's only like six people left, two on one side and four at another table. <clears throat> Paul Mooney comes in. Gets up on the stage, has his little drink, puts his feet up on a rail. It does a fucking hour. A fucking hour. There's nobody in the room. And he does a fucking hour. That's the way you got to be. You got to really think that way, you know? Mm -hmm. You got to think for yourself. Not give a shit. Be creative. And actually love doing what you're doing. And love the crowd. You got that? That's what, that's what gets you above, you know? I, I forgot to tell a, a, an auto story. So um, my my home comedy club, the Funny Stop, which is not far from where I'm broadcasting this, we uh, I put it a bug in the ear along with, uh, I think Jim Florentine did and Don Jameson and a couple other people um, that uh, they said, hey, you got to do this room. It's a B room. It's not Cleveland. It's kind of outside of Akron, Ohio, but it's a great room. You're going to love the owner. You know, he's he's hilarious. Well, what they didn't say is the owner is Lebanese and has a very thick accent. And so uh, Pete, the owner of the Funny Stop, calls Otto and says, Hello, is this Otto Peterson? And I, I would like to book you to be at the comedy club. And now Otto thinks that this is like a Jim Florentine prank where they're doing prank phone calls, like crank yankers. And, uh, and he's like, who the fuck is this? Get the fuck out of here. I'm, I'm not talking to you motherfuckers. And then he hangs up. So then Pete calls back and says, nobody fucking hang up on me. I'll never book you in my fucking club. And unfortunately, he never did because Otto ended up dying like maybe two years later. But it was still a really funny story because Otto thought he was getting pranked. <laughs> yeah, that's Otto. <laughs> oh, was I? I miss him, and I know you do too. Well, <sighs> I'm getting old. <laughs> we all are. Well, but uh, hey, Frankie, this is a great, great conversation. I can't wait to post it. It's going to be up next week, and uh, when we uh, have it on there. But again, uh, what's the website? And I know there's things you have in the hopper down the road. But where can people get in touch and uh, find all things Frankie Pace? I just go to uh, first of all. I'm on I'm on YouTube, but but it's all mostly the same material with the props because at that time I didn't want anybody to steal my stand up. But I do have one stand up that I did in Fishkill, and uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, uh, so I'm on YouTube. You can go there, and I'm on uh, FrankiePaceComic.com is my website, and has my dossier. And has photos of me with a lot of celebrities. And uh, I got the Joan Rivers show I did. And she loved me. She wanted me to do five more. But she had a fight with the, co with the company because her husband wanted to be a producer there. And they wouldn't let him. So he quit. And she got mad. And she quit. And I lost the, you know. Yeah, and it, it didn't last much longer after that, unfortunately. Jenny was on there, too. He was a little upset. He wanted to do some more. But Jenny was another great act. 
another fantastic actor. Unbelievable. Oh, oh by the way, uh, be, before we go, because I heard this uh, since, again, I'm, I'm out of Ohio. I heard that you had some crazy story in doing a gig with Bill Kirkenbauer in Ohio. What was that like? Uh, <laughs> it was in Chicago. Oh, Chicago. Okay, I knew it was Midwest. We go with the funny, funny firm. Funny firm, funny. Yeah, fu- yeah, I think it was funny firm. That's where Bill Hicks used to play back in the day. Uh, let me just give you my website real fast. FrankiePaceComic.com. Okay. Uh, Bill would work the funny firm, and every time he worked there, there would be hecklers that would give him a hard time. So he got pissed off and brought in his own bouncer. <laughs> Now, for folks who don't know, Bill Kirkenbauer was in, uh, was it, uh, yeah, uh, the 10 of us, and then he, he had a brief cameo in Airplane when uh, right before the Ethel Merman scene where he's like, I found the I found the hole, the Viet Cong, everything. It's like, and then he goes, uh, who's that? It's uh, Lieutenant Hurwitz, severe shell shock, thinks he's Ethel Merman. It's actually Ethel Merman. Right. He's living in Thailand now. Um, so we were in Chicago. We were at the funny firm, <clears throat> and I get booked there. And I'm the headliner, and Bill is pissed. So I come over to him, I go, Bill, what's going on, you know? And I find out about the story that they <clears throat> they wanted to get rid of him. He was under contract, but he was under L.A. contract that if they tried to sue him, he would win because it's in L.A. They'd have to go to L.A. and fight for the money and all this shit. So they figured... We'll put Frankie Pace on as a headliner to make him so pissed that he won't want to work. <laughs> Renege the contract, right? So <clears throat> I get there, and he's pissed off. And, and he doesn't hate me, but he's pissed off at the situation. <clears throat> I says, Bill, you, you could see what they're trying to do here. They want you to quit. You understand that, right? Because, yeah, I know I should fucking quit. I should walk out right now. I go, no. If I were you, I know you love dim sum. I would go on stage, do you do twenty minutes? That's all you gotta do. Twenty fucking minutes. Go across the street, enjoy your dim sum, and I'll you know finish the show up here. You're gonna be getting more money than me, and who's better? You're you're better off with it. And he thought about it, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right." And we became friends. And I got him on my podcast, too. I got to put him up one of these days. And uh, we became good friends. We hung out the rest of the week, and he worked the shows. And they were pissed at me because they found out what I I said. And uh, I didn't give a fuck. I didn't want to work there anymore anyway, so. Uh, but Bill got his way. Thank God for that. And uh, that's that's the name of that tune. Yeah, I, fo- I follow um, Facebook friends with Bill Kirkenbauer, and I see all his posts. You know, like, boy, you want to talk about somebody who said, "No, I'm done. I'm done with America." He went to Thailand of all places. <clears throat> yeah, he's living large, man. He loves it there. It's a uh, you know, every everything is cheap. You know, I got a friend that lives in the Philippines. And he's paying like $16,000 a year for a house. <laughs> he's got maids to come in and clean and all that shit. You know, who's, be- who's better than him, right? Well, Frankie, this has been a fantastic conversation. I love the old stories. Love talking talking to you as well. And uh, yeah, let's keep let's stay in touch. And whenever you have anything you want to like, any specials, any uh, shows, anything going on, you know my phone number. Love to have you back on. Have a great day and uh, good work with the uh, podcast. I hope it goes very well. 
Thank you. I appreciate that.